You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get? If I run ads for you, what are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes... 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout. And you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store at 50% off. And then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Content warning. The language, 
content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on all things disability and everything else in between. I don't know what the title of the show is. It's, you know, whatever it is. But it is Disability After Dark in all the ways. And I am your number one queer cripple, your disabled Dick Smith. I am all those things to you. I'm Andrew Gerza. Get comfy, cozy, and cripple with me. And let's get this show started. First things first, I want to give a shout out to the awesome people who help keep a bright light shining on this show. And for that today, I'm going to do two shout outs because I feel like two shout outs are appropriate for today because they're so awesome. The first shout out I want to give out is to my friend and repeat guest of the program. You may have heard him on episode 99, I think, and episode, I can't remember, episode like episode 45. His name is Amin Lakani, and he pledged $5 a month to keep this show going. And your sexy pun is, Amin Lakani, I know you're not a mean girl, so thanks for being cool. I don't know. But Amin Lakani, thank you for your pledge. I also want to pledge to a new person that pledged to me. Their name is, let me just pull it up here. Their name is... Their name is. It, oh, I lost what their name is. Hang on one second, I'll find it. I have disabilities. Hold on. This is the joy of running your own studio because no one knows what to do when you can't reach the thing. Hang on one second. I will find the person who it is. I'm going to type it in the Google machine right now. Hold tight, please. Hold. And the next person that I want to give a shout out to, I finally found it in the Google. Their thing, their name is Eric Aaron Deutsch. And I have no pun for your name except to say thank you for your $1 pledge, Eric. I hope that you secretly love Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid because I think he was really hot. So that's your weird pun. Thank you so much for your pledge. And this means that both Amin and and Eric are getting their show one day early on Wednesday afternoon, or sorry, Wednesday morning rather, on the Patreon feed. And they get a weird shout out for me. If you want to get all those perks for being a a patron, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or whatever you can to help keep this show going. I super duper appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. And now let's get to the show today. On the show today, I sit down with a new friend of mine, somebody who I super duper enjoyed talking to. We had a right proper chat. We did me and this person, and I am excited to tell you all about them. My guest on the program today is my new friend, my new British friend, Katie Pennick. Pennick. And I really, really enjoyed chatting with her. We were going to meet up when I was in London a few months ago, but then th- things were things fell apart on that end, and then we were going to do the podcast a few months 
ago when before uh, before the pandemic hit, and then we finally got a chance to sit down together. So we decided to have a jam-packed discussion, and we really did that. We sit down today and we talk about her experiences as a young disabled woman trying to date, and some of the some of the the craziness of that. And then we also talk about. A little bit about the social model of disability and what that means for her and why that's important for her and also how just how important the social model is for her and how it's shaped her understanding of disability and I thought that was a really really important conversation if you're listening and you don't know much about disability rights or disability politic having a discussion with Katie about disability um, about the social model of disability and why that's important will give you kind of an idea of some of the ways disability politic has been uh, has been formed but it was a really really fun chat she's super great we had a bunch of audio issues in during recording it it came out twice and things were really like things didn't work when during the recording so I want to just give a shout out to my friend Dick Wound who has been a repeat guest and is the owner of the podcast jukebox network which this podcast is hosted on he was super kind to me and said I will um, help you he said I'll help you do all that and I'll make sure that it's okay and I'll do some editing for you so big ups to him thank you Dick Wound I really appreciate it and I thank you for the time you took to properly edit this for me means a lot but without further ado here's my interview with the amazing the awesome the important Katie Pennick right here on the Thursday edition of Disability After Dark. Katie Pennick, hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm so happy to have you on Disability After Dark. It's we, so great to finally meet you. It's been, we've been planning this literally since September of last year. Yeah, we've been planning it like to, to hang out. We were, I was in London in September and we were going to have coffee and then the world fell apart. Yeah, the world fell apart a few times we kind of kept postponing and then there was a global pandemic and you know and now now we're here (laughs) um but I'm so it's so kind to meet you and I'm really really excited because you emailed me and said I want to be on your show I love what you do and now here we are so I'm excited yeah this is very cool I've I've followed you for so long and I've never really done the whole meeting people on Twitter meeting meeting Twitter people in real life thing so it's a weird, it's a weird thing when you meet people on Twitter in real life. Cause I love hearing what people sound like because you get an idea in your head as to what they sound like. And oh wow! Did you did I do I sound like you expect me to? Sound? <laughs> you sound you have more of an accent than I had put in my head, but that's probably because my head doesn't do accents. <laughs> so my like more of like a Canadian accent. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. See, it's... and I would say you have a British accent, but you, yeah, and you probably go like, "No, I don't. I sound, <laughs> I sound normal." <laughs> oh no, I, I, I do have a very, uh, what, what's the word? Quintessentially English accent, very RP, very Queen's yeah. English, yeah. very I, posh. <laughs> I can hear a little bit of it in there now, but I, I when, when I was over there, when we were over there, I like fell in love with the accent. I was like, "Oh, I love it! It's happening!" I'm... <laughs> <laughs> like I'm an anglophile so for me it's like really exciting I love being over there it was it was my dream to go visit the UK 
Okay. And my mom and I, I just said to her last year at a talk, I said, you know, let me take the money from this talk and we'll go over there. I really want to go. I wanted to go since I was a child. Can we please go? And she was like, okay, okay, I'll take you. And we went and I had the best time. Oh, good. I'm so glad. It was. How did you I, find it? It was. We'll, we'll get into like the, the like dating inaccessibility in a minute, mm-hmm. but like. I found it to be, I mean, I was surprised with how both accessible and inaccessible it was at certain points. Mm. It was a point where I was, and we stayed in, in and around Canary Wharf. Um, and so there was a point where we were on the train going somewhere and they didn't tell us where, then uh, this is me going off on a huge change before we even throw the interview, but they didn't tell <laughs> us where the the wheelchair drop-off yeah, of it was. And so mm. we got on there. And every time they stopped, there was a huge lift to get off, but nobody would mm. say, nobody said like, hey, the wheelchair part of this is over here, or you go to the train at the wrong point. So we had to like, we kept going back and forth from wherever we were going, and we had to like pull the, oh, the train lever a bunch, and nobody, and the people that were helping, they were supposed to help you get on off were annoyed that we were asking for help, and they're like, why didn't you just know? We were like, sorry, we're tourists! <laughs> the London Underground tube system and the wider network of rail and trains in the UK is notoriously difficult as a wheelchair user. I mean, it's, it really, I, yeah, I have to say it was mind bogglingly difficult, really so hard to navigate. And they weren't, I mean, you know, the worst part of it, it wasn't so much even the, the train itself. It was the people that were supposed to know what to do. The, the people with the vests on that were supposed to be like, you know, the disability coordinators and were supposed to like know how to help you were so, they didn't care that you wanted help. They're like, oh, I have to move now. I have to leave my post and help you. Why, why, why would I have to do that? And it's like, well, because they're paying you. That's your whole job. <laughs> I'm sorry you had that experience. And it's, I mean, I, as a tourist coming into London, the, the tube network is completely impenetrable i mean it's so hard to understand what you're meant to be doing and where you're meant to be going and what direction you're facing but when you're using a wheelchair on top of that it is it's so difficult it is it's like um it is quite literally piccadilly circus yeah it was and you know in toronto we have a a two we have like a a subway but it's basically there's like four stops oh wow well not four stops but there's like you know it's north south (laughs) east west and that's it. And then like, you know how to get on one of the four train systems and that's what you do. That's but like, amazing. But like, in, like the UK and at New York, for as a wheelchair user, like London and New York were really confusing for me. Mm. Yeah. Dude, like just painfully confusing. But enough <laughs> about my weird subway travels. And my, my two <laughs> I could travels. talk about weird subway travels forever. I mean, Love that. that should be a whole podcast episode by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, so Katie, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and also kind of share kind of what your, how disability plays a role in your life. Cool. Um, I'm Katie. I live in London and I am a disabled campaigner and journalist. I don't know. I don't really know what to describe myself as. I do lots of bits and bobs. Um, I make radio and podcasts. Um, I have my own podcast, which you can listen to. And I... Name the slug. What podcast? (laughs) I actually... Okay, so as we've literally just been talking about transport, I made a podcast about inaccessible transport here in 
the UK called How We Got Here, where I interview another famous disabled person as as we literally make a journey on public transport together. So, I mean, I that's interviewed- my favorite. That's the <laughs> coolest. That's I mean, it's super niche, but I love it because it's very necessary. niche. It's so niche. Um, but and it was also a logistical nightmare to record because I'm a wheelchair user, so I can't. And I'm a manual wheelchair user, so I, I use my hands to push my chair. Yeah. And holding a microphone while pushing a chair is kind of not feasible. And I was interviewing people who are also wheelchair users, so also couldn't hold mics. Yeah, they um, can't help you. <laughs> so we were like kind of juggling mics and recording equipment and also navigating you know the tube system um in central london on a busy day i mean it was it was chaos but it was really fun and um if you're interested in um a little bit of the history of disability rights in the uk and also how things have progressed but also you know how far there is to go especially in terms of like physical infrastructure such as the um transport system then I would obviously recommend having a listen. It's called How We Got Here. Um, and you can find it on all your podcast platforms. I How will make that? sure that was great. I'll make sure that it's in the show notes for today because I think that it's stuff like that is so necessary. And, you know, again, this is me going off on a tangent, but there's so few disability podcasts in the podcast mm. space. Like, yeah. There's, there's maybe five or six that I can think of offhand. but they they don't get enough traction and they don't get enough like you know they don't get enough ears on them because mm. disability is still taboo so i want to i'll make sure that that's plastered everywhere when this one comes out thank you because thank you. it's important so tell me about, tell me a little bit about your disability and how it plays a role in your day today um i'm a wheelchair user i'm a full-time wheelchair user so i don't uh walk or stand at all and i i was born with my impairment so i've i've been a wheelchair user um, and disabled my whole life um, and it in, I mean you know it shapes absolutely every single part of my life it, I have to think a lot about physical access to things it's a lot of planning ahead it's a lot of uh, thinking about how I'm gonna do things um, but gosh that's a huge question I mean how it impacts your daily life uh, having been born with my impairment instead of acquiring it later on in life I'm obviously completely used to it and so I don't kind of consciously think about the way it affects me because it just is it is me it is my life yeah um but I think probably the more the most interesting ways in which it's shaped me is um probably how I how I just go about my life especially when I was younger um and less versed in the in disability rights you know when I was younger and before I discovered the social model of disability um and I didn't know any other disabled people I was very sort of well not ashamed but I had so much internalized ableism and I had such a negative view of disability that it it really impacted um, my mental health and you know how I interacted with other people. Um, I, I sort of I remember being younger and always forcing myself to do things that I kind of 
looking back, I don't think I was really enjoying doing, but I just <laughs> felt that I had to because that's what everyone else was doing. So, you know, like going, going to clubs, um, which were kind of packed full of people and I would be down at this height and not being able to hear anyone for the entire night. I mean, to be honest, I do actually like clubbing a little bit now. It depends on the people you go with. But I, yeah. I did so many things when I was a teenager, like going out and partying and putting myself into like retrospectively quite dangerous situations um, because I had to prove myself. I had to prove that I was fun and cool and like every other teenager. And I had so much, I really tried to distance myself from disability. And up until quite recently, I never even called myself disabled. And that's not to say that I didn't, you know, realize I was disabled. Obviously, I, you know, yeah, I knew that on some level, but I was so ashamed of it. And I, I didn't want to be like all those disabled people I saw in the media, which who were all, you know, portrayed as pitiable and sad exactly yeah dependent on others and you know sad stuck at home feeling sorry for myself and I was like that's not me I'm not like that I'm not disabled I'm just like everyone else and this the effort I put into distancing myself from that label um is really sad looking back on it and through a lot of um work and processing and thinking and reflecting and reading um reading a lot of incredible things written by disability disability theorists such as Mike Oliver and reading about the social model I came to realize that it wasn't disability that was wrong it was the the image that we have of it um that is so one-dimensional and and flawed inaccurate you know and um started to realize that actually being disabled is 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 really neither here nor there you know it's just it's literally just a thing it's just it, a descriptor is it something you because for, for me like I see it as a little bit more of a descriptor I see it as something that is like in my bones and it's like a part of it like it it's a it's a part of who I am and there are days when I hate it and there are days when I when I'm like I love being disabled that's great mm. are there do you feel like it's something you're attached to yeah, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of, as a, as a political thing and as a social thing and as a part of my identity, it is so important to me. And I'm, it is, a, it is a huge part of my identity. And I identify as a disabled woman, and it, it's shaped the way I see the world, and so on a political level, it is, you know, that aspect of it is very important to me. Um, but I, I suppose I was talking more about my impairment. You know, obviously we have the distinction between those two things. Yeah. And the fact that I use a wheelchair or like the fact, the specific medical condition I have is just like irrelevant, I think. And I have a, I have a big thing. I mentioned I work a bit in radio. I do some journalism. I have a big shtick basically about how the media talk about disabled people because in any kind of, uh, item news piece that features disabled voices they introduce the disabled person as like ex Betty from Liverpool who has a very rare form of spina bifida and blah, blah 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 and it's like you don't you, you do not need to know that like nobody needs to know the very specific medical descriptors 
of someone's condition. And if they want to talk about that, yeah, absolutely go for it. You know, that's their prerogative. But usually the most relevant part of information to the piece that they're talking about. So, you know, if, if people are on the radio talking about, as I was recently talking about um, COVID-19 and lockdown and how that's affecting um, people who are shielding, you know, people who are um, disabled need to stay at home. Like uh, all these journalists were asking me, so what, so what is the name of your condition just so we can um, introduce you? And I'm like, why do you need to know? Like, why, <laughs> why do you need to know that? Like ridiculously um, like, personal but, thing. Yeah. Very, very specific information because I guarantee if I tell you you're not going to have heard of it anyway and also it literally doesn't matter like no one the audience doesn't need to know this what you need to know about me is that I am disabled and and that's kind of it and you know maybe if it's relevant to the conversation if we're talking about access if we're talking about access and if we're talking about you know needing ramps on trains and then it is relevant for me to say I'm a wheelchair user you know, that bit is relevant to the conversation, but you don't need to know like what the specific genes I'm like lacking in are, you know, you don't need to know that level of detail. Yeah. Um, Anyway, that's, that's my uh, (laughs) shtick with the, um, with the way in which disability is, is uh, reported on in journalism. Yeah, Um, I think I, and I think I would, I would agree with you looking back on, you know, the times that I've been on the radio and then done media stuff. The number of times I've said, oh, oh, I have cerebral palsy, or they've asked me, like, hey, what, what's your disability? And I will just almost knee-jerkingly say, like, oh, I have CP, because, like, because I just feel like I'm supposed to. But I agree with you that there is a sense of, like, why, why, why would you need to know? Why do you want to know? And so, like, what is, how is that going to illuminate your piece on what we're talking about? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't affect, and it, it kind of, yeah, this is also very rooted in the social model way of thinking which is that like I'm not disabled because of my specific condition I'm disabled by the environment like I'm disabled because of the built environment I'm disabled because there is a lack of accessible you know accommodations there's a lack of ramps there's a lack of all of the other things I need that's that's the relevant thing to talk about that's why I'm disabled like this the name of my specific condition doesn't come into it and isn't isn't relevant so. now i was going to ask you this later but since you since we brought up the social model <laughs> company, I'm, thinking, oh, I'm going to plug this one in now um how do you like the social model as we've said is you know society impairing us by not putting ramps and by not society disabling us by not putting ramps by not you know putting elevators by not putting buttons by not making it accessible for us there has been some criticism on the social model of like it doesn't necessarily talk about how to deal with the pain that's actually in your body and stuff that your when your disability does stop you how do you as somebody who is a proponent of the social model how do you feel about all that yeah I'm not so this is very tricky because I think also this varies a lot between countries I think um and I think I don't know really I I think that most of the criticisms I've seen of the social model have been more to do with kind of a misunderstanding about what the social model says um because it's just it's just a way of thinking about disability it's not necessarily like prescribing any solutions or okay no that doesn't make sense let me start again um 
Yeah, the the social model says that you are disabled by the environment. So the reason that you can't access things and the reason that you don't have equal opportunity to jobs, education, resources is because the world has been built in such a way that prohibits you. Um that isn't accessible to you. Right. And and so I think that you're saying that the criticisms are, but what about take away society, like take away all the external stuff? What about just embodiment? You know, what about the pain you feel? Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that it's not, I don't think the social model, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think that's a criticism of the social model because I think the social model advocates for a fair and inclusive world that would, um, that would accommodate each person individually based on their needs. And, and so that's, it's social model is, is a way to describe all the things that we need in society. So if you, if you are having a flare up and you're in pain and it makes it so that you can't work, the social model advocates for, a fair employment practice where you would be able to have flexible working arrangements and to have fair consideration by your employer and not be penalized because of that. I suppose maybe then the criticism is like, oh, but we, I just don't want to be in pain. Yeah. Which, um, which is fair enough. But I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I just feel like the social model is talking about social, the social aspect of it. See, this, this is where I struggle with, like, and I studied the social model in school and I did a whole thing on it. And so, like, I, I know, I remember reading the criticisms and looking at all that. And that's why I wanted to bring it up to you because I think mm-hmm. the social model is all these theories on disability and, like, disability rights are, are really fun to talk about in, like, a disability rights class because it's a theory. My, I think where I struggle is, like, a lot of these theories haven't been expanded enough when they were being talked about or, or really, really they've been so distilled down so the people they can make sense to the non-disabled people reading about them that like they haven't been expanded enough to talk about how do you bring impairment into this like what you were saying about how the social model should be should flex for whatever your needs are that's a great idea but that's not what i understood the social model to be when I initially read it. Like, I, I just feel like these theories of disability are great and they're important, but I feel like they need to be, the language needs to be updated to talk about like what people are going through in their day to day. And maybe we need to expand on how it's, how it's written about. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, I can't speak to what you were taught in school or like the way in which you like that information was presented to you. And I, and I, again, I think, I think there might be some difference here in terms of like local disability communities. There's, yeah, there's yeah. Difference in the, there's probably a huge difference in the way that these ideas are discussed and disseminated within the, the UK disabled community versus the Canadian one. Um, I think, it's so yeah I don't know the way it was taught in school but I mean, um, the, the me, way I was taught in school was very simply like the social model is much like what we said the environment disables you and the individual model was like the that it's your cross to bear and you have to manage being disabled and it's your fault and 
So like they're very two distinct systems. Yeah. So the key thing I think for me is that it's, it's basically, it's a political call to arms. It's, it, it's born, it's, it's a reaction to, you know, the, the 60s and 70s, which had a very medicalized view of disability and governments made absolutely no provision um, to make the world accessible. And there were no um, accommodations given to disabled people. There was no access. There was no equality at all. Um, and that was because we had this medicalized view of disability, which is that disabled you know, disability, that's a terrible thing to be. That's a terrible thing to, to, to happen. And we should feel sorry for these individuals, but you know, that's kind of, that's tough shit, you know, like, um, it's, it's, it's their, it's their issue. If, if they, they were born with some weird genes or if they were in an accident and lost a leg, you know, that's awful and tragic and terrible, but that's kind of, that is tough tips. And this was a reaction to that saying like, actually, hang on, that's like completely turn the entire turn the entire idea on its head that we are all every single one of us in a body and all of these bodies are different and arbitrarily some of them have been designated as normal and I'm saying this with air quotes here some of them have been designated as normal and able and some of them have been designated as disabled and why is that because it we have built this world around us we have built that ourselves it's man-made it's constructed and therefore we've built a world that discriminates against this group of people and accommodates for this group of people and that's completely wrong and it's like the, the example I would always use is that um if you like go into a classroom like the thing you'll find there is a room full of chairs now I don't need a chair. I've got one. So if I walk into that room, like I see a bunch of chairs that I literally don't need. Um, whereas all of my biped friends, my walking friends, go into that room and they have somewhere to sit. Like their needs have been accommodated for. Mine haven't. And then it's this question of like, okay, so who's who's the one with additional needs here? You know, it's it's socially constructed. It's it's constructed by the world that we've built. Oh, I like that. No, you know, I never put that together <laughs> until right until you just said that. I was like, I don't know. Because <laughs> you're right. You I, don't need a, <laughs> I don't need a chair. Yeah. And that's that's what I would say. It's a way of turning this issue on its head. You know, like like we are all people and we all have needs, but we've just live in a world where some people's needs have been accommodated for and some haven't. Mine, yours specifically, haven't. Yeah. And the social model is a political stance. It's saying, hang on, that's not okay. Like we need to build a world that accommodates everyone, everyone, regardless of what body they live in. And so I don't think, yeah, it's, it's a simple, it is a simple political concept. It's basically saying everyone has equal, should have equal access to the world and currently we don't and we need to fight for that i like that that's a great <laughs> button to end that question on that was great um i want to shift a little bit because we are a sexy podcast so yes. <laughs> one of the things that you mentioned to me in your questionnaire that i really wanted to touch on and i made a question about it just for that was you kind of said that internalized ableism impacted your personal view on your own sense of attractiveness can you kind of talk us through those feelings and what that what you mean by that 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, I, I also mentioned to you about how, you know, there's this, there's this form of discrimination that sits at the intersection of sexism and ableism. And yeah. I think my experience of being a disabled woman has really kind of been marred by that. Um, you know, as a woman or as a femme presenting person, you are constantly objectified by the male gaze. You know, your your worth and your value is so often tied up with or or related to your desirability. And people are, you know, people are judged on how attractive they are or, you know, how pretty they are um, and how much people want to fuck them or or how, you know, how they move in that space. And that's so out of our control. It's something that's completely, you know, put on us. And it's it's a weird sort of double-edged sword and and something that's really uncomfortable to talk about as well when you are a disabled woman because while your non-disabled women uh folks appears around you are kind of uh objecting to being sexualized um in the same way you are being desexualized and it's like a weird kind of position to be in that you're kind of you're experiencing the flip side of that, but it is the same thing. It is just having the the narrative taken from you. I'm not. I don't having know what I've Yeah, you're ha- having the agency of like you want to be. You don't want to be sexualized, but then at the same time, you don't want to be decent. It's, yeah, I can. See yeah, that. yeah. And it's always been, it, yeah, it's always been really weird and uncomfortable for me um, because. I mean, you know, I don't want to be seen as either. I don't want to be sexualized or desexualized. I just like, um, I don't want to have my body, um, like assigned value by men who find me attractive or not, because like, that's not, that doesn't, I don't care <laughs> what they think, but I did, I did for a really long time. And I have so many uh, experiences of like, um, going out you know I'd go out with my friends when I was in uni or um yeah when I was like late teens early 20s and you know we'd go to bars and clubs and things and I'd get these guys kind of coming up to me and like making moves on me and then saying like oh like (laughs) I um you're so sexy for like for a, a girl in a chair yeah for a girl in a chair and and I'd be like oh and and then yeah some people be like oh um like don't worry I don't I don't I don't mind and I'm like sorry you don't mind what don't you're mind, like don't great and it's like I don't I don't mind the chair and I was like okay I mean neither do I um and it's and just that's, it's such a hard that's such a hard comment because I struggle with that too when because gay men will say that to me a lot on the on the apps when I'm looking for sex mm. or companionship or even just somebody to, to talk to or like if I want to go on an app and talk to a hot dude for an hour like they'll be like oh I think you know your chair is so cool it's okay by me and like what are you supposed to say back to that like, yeah thanks but at the same time I'm always like okay I know what you're trying to say like I'm trying so I try to like 
for myself, I try to look past the ableism for like a split second and be like, okay, underneath that, what you're trying to say is that like, you think right now it wouldn't bother you. But if we were in the same room together and I told you what I really needed from you, would you be okay with that? Mm. Like, I wish they, I wish they would look past the like, oh, I think it's cool because, you know, they want to be, they want to make me feel comfortable. But then it's like, we hung out. Would you really be okay? Who knows? Yeah. I, yeah, there is definitely that aspect to it as well. Um, but I mean, God, it sounds like you're very patient because when you're saying, oh, just like, look, kind of give them a chance, look past the ableism. What are you, what are you trying to say there? I, I just, I mean, now I have no time for it at all. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, if you'd asked me all these questions, like, uh, mm, like more, more than five years ago, like, I don't know. When, yeah. Back when I was in school, like, you know, um, up sixth form, sorry, college, uh, high, yeah, high school, high school, second high school. High school yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had such a, I mean, it's tough. It's tough being a teenager. For anyone. Oh yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, it's really hard, like breaking into that sudden world where you know people are looking at each other and like people are having sex and and some like coming to terms like grappling with sexuality and the idea of desirability and attractiveness that's hard for everyone yeah categorically that is not a fun time regardless of but, disability or ability that's yeah that's, I mean, that's a shit show regardless it's a shit show <laughs> it is a shit show but when you add like visible physical difference to that it's just like this hot mess because I remember being about god like 15 and seeing an advert for a channel 4 show called the undateables which have you heard of it because you don't have it we don't have it here but it's funny when I did my um my sex party in Toronto a couple years ago the the producers from Unnatables and the BBC reached out to me and said, mm. would you, <laughs> they, I think they thought I was a little UK, but they said, would you want to come on the show? And I said, uh, thanks, but I don't live there, but uh, thanks for reaching out to me. But I didn't realize how, how, what the show was about. And then I looked at it and I was like, wow. Oh. Yeah. Um, I remember being, you know, in a very fragile and vulnerable point in my life, as you are as a 15-year-old girl, and seeing an advert for a show in which I saw a blonde, very pretty young woman in a wheelchair. And I remember it so vividly because back at that time, you know, about 10 or so years ago, um, you never saw disabled people on the TV. You just never did. Unless you were watching literally the Paralympics. You never saw disabled people on TV. And I remember seeing this like gorgeous blonde girl in a wheelchair and thinking, oh, wow, like this is really cool. And then I kind of watched the end of the trailer and it was an advert for a show called The Undateables. And it was this like, like reality show. And again, you've got this whole like, voyeuristic element of reality shows which is a big problem in 
the UK as well. Um, but it was like this kind of horrible voyeuristic look at all of these disabled people and how they how they could possibly date um, under this idea of like the undateables. These people can't get dates in real life, so they've got to stick them on a reality TV show. And I just, oh, I can't describe that feeling. I just felt so, uh, so like embarrassed. I like I, and again, you know, this is a a, a lifetime of internalized ableism who kind of got to that point of this this consistently being fed this image that I was, you know, sad and and that my life was really sad and tragic and that, that this awful I had to live with this awful thing and and but then on top of that being told that I was now on top of being sad and pitiful and <laughs> like um tragic I was now also undateable and I was I was undesirable and unattractive and that no one would want to go out with me and and hearing this and being exposed to this you know, as a as a teenage girl, when everyone had started, you know, dealing with their sexuality among my peers, I just oh, it was really yeah, it was hard. I and I really remember that memory. It was just so demoralizing and made me feel so small and and yeah, really embarrassed. And, you know, again, this is why I say I really distanced myself from disability. And I, I didn't want people to see me as disabled. I didn't want to be seen as someone in a wheelchair. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be normal like everyone else. And, um, that was, yeah, shit. <laughs> and, um, I had to fight really hard to have a positive view of myself. And I don't, know how I did it to be honest and if I, I I wish I did because I wish I could bottle that and give it to others in a similar situation but because I honestly god I remember being a teenager and just hating myself like hating the way I looked um and I I felt so ugly all the time I felt so undesirable and you know I refused to go swimming because I didn't want anyone to see me in a swimsuit and I, I I I remember I would be embarrassed to get in lifts I would be like if I was with a group of friends and they went upstairs and I need to go in the lift I would like I'd be cringing at needing to get in a lift because I was like oh god this is like really drawing attention to the fact that I use a wheelchair <laughs> I mean it was so ridiculous and so insidious and so like ingrained in me I just I I really I felt so disgusted with myself every time I was reminded of my own disability and um and you know coupled with the kind of the the deep misogyny we have of like having as a woman having your worth judged on by male like boys opinion of you um I really really like wanted men to find me attractive and and yeah, that was a whole uh, not good <laughs> period of time in my life. Um, so all of that coupled with this, you know, very sexist notion that um, we are, you know, women are, ba they're women's um, 
worth and value is based on their desirability and attractiveness. Um, all of this just kind of made me really seek out male validation. And I think that was a point in my life where um, I, I guess I was kind of using sex as a way to just validate myself um, and would really, yeah, I was just like really needed to feel desirable. Um, and so I think a lot of my kind of early sexual experiences were more about me like telling myself that I really I was desirable and sexy than it was about like actually having any sexual gratification and so how how yeah. does how do you feel like now how do you feel like you think those two worlds have come together more now do you feel like you can explore your sexuality in a way that makes you feel good that isn't based on like some dude saying you look hot yeah basically but I don't know how I got here <laughs> so it's 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 a weird thing, you know, I, I try and put myself back into the headspace that I was in, you know, um, how many years ago, where I was really just not like, yeah, I wouldn't have sex because I was, I, I wasn't like exploring sex. I wasn't exploring sex in terms of pleasure and what made me feel good and what I wanted to, you know, explore and, try out I was more just you, you were doing to, it almost to like to like say you did it and you're like there I did it I, just, I did it like you did yeah but more, more not just like a tick box not just like oh I've did it I had sex it's more just like I I got a lot of gratification from just feeling attractive and but I would only feel attractive is like a man was attracted to me you know so yeah. I was like really want I was really seeking that male validation um and like so yeah it felt very cutting when that wasn't the case um and god I remember and this is yeah this is terrible and this is a very sad story in many ways but um one of my earliest kind of sexual experiences again when I was you know a teenager in school um I went to a house party and, you know, got very drunk and um, hooked up with a boy. And I, I mean, for heaven's sake, we ended upstairs. I have no idea how. Well, I do. I was probably carried up the stairs. Who the fuck knows? Um, but I just, I mean, imagine I woke up the next morning upstairs. And you're not <laughs> sure how you got there. Downstairs, I was like, fuck um and kind of I like you know crept out I was kind of in this like spare room with this boy which luckily was by the stairs so I kind of like crept out like crawled down the stairs and like oh wow it was with your, with your chair your chair was at the bottom of the stairs luckily and you know everyone else was sleeping you know it was the morning after a massive house party everyone was like passed out all over the place and I remember like kind of creeping down the stairs and I got in my wheelchair and I was like hastily just like grabbing up my stuff, like to grab my shoes, grab my bag. And um, I had to like phone. And I, I, so I, I grew up in the countryside. Um, so I had to like ring one of my parents to try to come pick me up because um, <laughs> you know, no one could drive. And I, I was like kind of like creeping around, trying not to wake anyone up. And I heard upstairs 
um, people to kind of starting to wake up and like talking and stuff. And I, I heard the boy that I'd hooked up with kind of emerge from the, the room where we were. And I heard him kind of emerge and I heard another boy say to him like, Oh mate, like what happened last night? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Oh, oh, and this other boy was like, mate, did you, did you get with Katie? And he was like, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah." He was like, mate, that's fucking disgusting. Oh, like, like you fucked that disabled girl. Oh, mate, that's so disgusting. Oh, and I, I can't express how devastating. Yeah. And I was downstairs and I was like, please let, like, let me just like disappear. I don't like, I can't like, I don't want anyone to know that I'm here or that I've overheard that. And I was like, trying to like like disappear into a hole I was like trying to get out of the door and and then I think someone like saw me and was like oh Katie and I was like no fuck no and then people started coming downstairs and and this this like boy saw me and like looked all sheepish everyone just looked at each other and no one said anything and I I wish I could I just wish I could go back in time to my and just speak to my younger self and be like that boy don't mean shit <laughs> that boy doesn't mean shit and you are incredible and like amazing and beautiful and it's it's like that's his problem that he is so that he's projecting onto you thinking, you know yeah and and it's um, but yeah, that really fucked me up for a long time. You know, that was I was about sixteen, um, and I think that really set the motion for me, like really, like needing, like it, it was like an obsession, needing to like get with people, like regardless of whether I actually liked them or was sexually attracted to them or not, just to like feel validated. Yeah, and you know, well, this person likes me. You know, this person thinks I'm hot, so therefore I am rather than seeing that myself um but yeah I don't I don't know how I managed to get out of that but I did thankfully and now you know I I actually I really genuinely love the way I look and I I don't actually say that with any sense of force like I I do actually really like how I look I I really like my body like I look in the mirror and I really think huh yeah, you know what? I am sexy. Like I do actually feel sexy. And I don't know how I've managed to get to that point from where I was because it really feels like one extreme to another. But um yeah, I wish I I wish I knew how I did that. I think that's such an important <laughs> first of all, that story nobody could see my face. <laughs> When Katie started that story, but my face was like, oh God, because I think we've all been there in those moments of of our disabled youth where we're trying to do these adult things and we're brushing up against, against pure ableism. And I mean that in the sense of like, when you're young and like when, what that guy said about you, he, that was pure ableism and that he genuinely didn't know what he was saying. He didn't, it was just raw what he was saying. There it was, there it was. Oh, she's disgusting. So I'm gonna say it. He had no idea that it was, it was so hurtful. And like that's that's when we're dealing with ableism that young, and we're trying to fit in, and we're trying to be cool, and we're trying to 
make these big milestones that our non-disabled peers are making, and then that shit happens to us. Yeah, it fucks us up really, really mm-hmm. a lot. And so when you said that, my heart was like, oh my god, how many times have I been there? Have I mm-hmm. have I wanted to just disappear from this space because I don't know how to deal with what somebody just said? Yeah, and it is so it's so sad, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like media representations of disability. You know, they are so powerful and so insidious because that boy you know that boy didn't know what he was saying well he did i mean like okay let's give him some responsibility he was 16 he knew better but also you know he's just riffing off what he's been fed you know he had that image of disability because that's what he'd grown up watching the same as i had grown up watching and that's why i felt that way about myself and it's this is why you know i i i I actually, you know, I almost cried the other day. I did cry. I did cry. Katie, don't lie. I did cry about <laughs> I was watching um, Sex Education on Netflix and um, and they have a disabled character. That's right. And they show him this boy, you know, going to a party, going to a house party. Um, and obviously this, like, the person's house isn't accessible. They've got a flag stairs. And he's just like asks the people around him to carry him down the stairs and then he's there you know with this with the girl like drinking and chatting and I oh I felt so so emotional watching that because it was like it was you know it was a faithful look at a disabled teenager's life it that was me you know I that was me at that age I went to parties even though they were houses which were inaccessible and I asked my mates to carry me down the stairs and I drank way too much and made bad choices <laughs> as every teenager does and to see that in mainstream media was so powerful because I just thought if I had seen that when I was growing up if I had seen that I wouldn't have felt so alone so disgusted at myself you know so like needing to distance myself from that thing that I was and I would have had like the power to stand up to those images and maybe you know I'd have had the power to stand up to the people who did feel that way about me so yeah stories are intensely powerful and um and it's really great that we're finally getting to see a little bit more representation. I mean, it is it is great, and I think what sex education and I haven't seen that season yet, but I hear it's I hear it's fantastic. Uh, no spoilers then. Every time I go to watch, I feel like I don't want to watch them. Like I watch, then it's over, and then it'll be done, and I, there will be no more left. So I keep like, oh yeah, <laughs> I keep staving it off until I'm like, no, don't watch it, just wait. <laughs> um, but you know, I think it's so funny when we see pieces of ourselves in the media there have been moments where i too have been watching some something about disability and i just start to cry because oh my god here i am there's me and and it's 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 rare but it happens because you know what that feels like like that hits a nerve in your disabled body where you're like yep this is this I, i i know exactly what that feels like how do i like to see this on screen, it's important, but also can be really hard because we lived it. Yeah, and and lived it for so long alone, completely alone. I mean, I don't know about you growing up, but I I really I did not know any disabled people until 
literally a few years ago. You know, I, wow. I grew up, I was the only disabled person I knew and always was growing up. Um, wow. And I, you know, certainly I, the only wheelchair user I knew. I knew. And it's, yeah. I knew when I was a kid, I, I went to, my experience was different. I went to like, like disabled summer camps. I went to like disabled events. So I, I knew I was exposed to disabled people from a very young age. Um, I can't imagine being, and you're, what, you're 24, right? Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine being, you know, even in my 20s, I went to a school where they had disabled kids and attendant care. They had disabled students and attendant care there. So my whole kind of like youthful upbringing was around disabled friends and disabled peers and stuff. So that's, mm-hmm. but the feelings of ableism around like non-disabled people were still really really high like the feeling of like like you said earlier about not wanting to be like them and not wanting to be like those disabled people was really Mm. prevalent for me um i have since shunned those ideas because i think they're silly and they're full of internalized ableism and like however you identify as disabled i say good for you and any shit that i thought when i was younger that's just internalized ableism but i feel like all of us go through that period of like that hierarchical look at like, I don't want to be like that disabled person because mm. I'm better, which is so ridiculous. Yeah. And I, that definitely fed into a lot of what I was doing when I was younger, of, you know, like going out and going to parties and, you know, having sex and all of those things. I was like, I am a cool disabled person. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not like all those other ones that don't do anything, <laughs> um, which is like, Yeah so ridiculous but um yes and so again just really insidious and that's the effect of internalized ableism yeah totally i mean i i had a question one of the things you mentioned about the boy if you could go back now or you could sit down with the boy that said that to you and have coffee with that boy (laughs) and what would you like what would you say to him i wouldn't honestly (laughs) i wouldn't but i honestly i I just, I'm at a stage in my life now where I just don't have time. I just don't have time for it. And it, it's not, I weigh up because, you know, you'll know this. We encounter not nice attitudes, you know, negative attitudes all the time yep. from from every which way. And you always have to weigh up in your head how... Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yeah, exactly. Like how much of my energy and time and like emotional labor do I want to dedicate to educating this person? And I only do it with people that I think are are capable of learning and changing um, and who I care about. And some people are honestly just foul and, um, and fine. I have no time for that. And I, I don't, engage in that and that's why you know on twitter i don't engage in any kind of you know you get these horrible troll comments and and i just don't i just no i've just no time for it i have no time for it you know like this is that it's they can just live their hateful lives and that's fine and um yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't give that boy my time of day i don't think i mean you know maybe maybe he's um maybe he's changed maybe we don't, don't know but um it's a, I don't view it as worth my energy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. 
And I, I agree with you about the, is it worth it? I do that all the time now. Like, is it really worth me telling you this? Or is it really worth me? Like, my sense of, like, is it worth it? It's like, oh, well, you know. And when I was younger, my, my sense of is it worth it would, would kind of start and stop with, do I think you're hot enough to educate right now? <laughs> do I want to do Is your dick worth me <laughs> telling you this? Because if it is, maybe I'll like, but there were moments in my youth where like that was a thing I did. We're like, oh, you're hot. So, okay, let me try to teach mm. you why you were, what you said was ridiculous. But I definitely understand as I get older, like I try really hard in my work to educate because... Even when I'm like, oh fuck, I don't want to do this because I, I, I'm learning that for me, and this is my own personal choice for me that like, it's really hard to sit with that anger and to sit with that like feeling of like, I hate you because you said this, and yeah, it's valid and real, and I think it's we all should ex- express that if we have it. But from a personal feeling, it was like, if I keep feeling this, I'm gonna get sick. And I noticed that my body was responding to how angry I was getting in really, frankly, unhealthy ways. So I've yeah. I've had to pivot it for myself in a way that's like, how do I, how do I educate you, give you some mm-hmm. spoons, but also stay sane. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. And anger is. Anger is the worst feeling. It's it is the such hardest destructive feeling. energy. Yeah. It just eats you up. And I've I've had a lot of it um, over my life. And I think I'm so much more able now to just kind of let go of things and to to actually just not care about things that previously would get me really angry. Um, I, you know, it's that cliche, that sentiment of, um, what is it? Get something change the things you can and accept the things you can't change change the things yeah it's it's one of those yeah um which yeah it's basically like you uh, spend effort and energy on changing the things that you actually have the power power to influence and for me that's um that's speaking to people who i know are open to hearing things um and actually i think i actually remember one of my first ever call outs um was i so i i did my study abroad in berkeley so i lived in california for a year oh which that's amazing. right yeah yeah i didn't even put a question out about that but i do want to talk about that for sure <laughs> okay we can i which was incredible i learned i mean that was that was the start really of my um learning to love myself journey because it was you know being at the birthplace of the modern disability rights movement and you know seeing loads of other disabled people around which was cool um and I was learning I took a class on women and disability and so learning a lot about the theories and I felt a lot more empowered to talk about it and I remember once I was kind of out with some friends and this friend who I knew to be a uh a nice person a kind person um who you know had her heart and mind in the right place on many social issues um and I remember she said something like oh I feel really sorry for that boy there's a boy who another boy who used a wheelchair and he was like around at the parties as well a lot and she was like oh I feel really sorry for him um 
it must be really hard and and I think she used the word wheelchair bound as well and I remember like my heart was like pounding because I'd never I'd never um called someone out before and it was someone you know this girl was my friend and I really someone liked that her you respected yeah yeah I really cared about her and I was like that what she's just said has kind of made me uncomfortable and upset me and I want I just want to I want her to know that there is another way of thinking about this. Um, but I don't want to like upset her or like, you know, and the friendship, but like, yeah. yeah. And I, my heart was just pounding and I just said, Oh, um, you know, I just explained to her that it's not the best thing to feel sorry for people. And, you know, it's, you shouldn't presume that someone's life is bad or a certain way just because they're a wheelchair user and actually disabled people lead brilliant, vibrant, wonderful lives and, and all of these things, blah, blah, blah. And she took it so well. And she, you know, she was like, thank you for explaining to me. I really appreciate that, blah, blah, blah. And it just, it went so well that I think that that early experience really set me up for being like, okay, actually this is, yeah, I can do this. So it's, yeah, I try and do that sort of thing. It's really hard because a lot of what we see in, in the social in the like social media disability rights realm is like you have to call them out and you have to call them out angrily and you have to do it in a way that is really direct and really like I see a lot of disability activists who I respect and I get why they I get why they're upset and I understand where the, where the anger comes from and I respect it but it's it pains me to see when it's done with so much anger that you actually end up shutting the other person down a little bit and you make them less willing to want to learn about what you're saying and more like, oh, you've just called me out, so I'm going to walk away. And I think that's where we as disability activists struggle is like, how do, if I care about you and if you're my friend and you said something like that, how do I hold your hand through this and like like, take you down why that hurt, but Mm. do it in a way that doesn't demean you for feeling that way and it's such a it's such a hard journey and i've done it with friends of mine and i've done it with people that i respect too and it's that feeling you feeling of like your heart pounding and you were all nervous i know exactly what that feels it's so hard yeah you're so right it is very much hand holding um and you've got to have the right you've got to be in the right mindset you've got to have so much energy and like mental like uh, fortitude to like energy yeah. yeah to do it um and i i completely empathize with people who you know as you say on twitter who just kind of short circuit and just go in hard um because yeah that's how yeah like why should we um spend all our time all the time educating others yeah but it's but at the same time unfortunately it is just what needs to be done. Um, I mean, and that's that's where I've come to with my activism. I used to go in really hard. I used to be really angry. I used to call everybody out for being an ableist every five seconds. And for a while, that was that was nourishing to me, that idea of like, I'm going to call you out and I'm right and you're wrong and you're a fucking ableist and fuck you. <laughs> that was really nice for a while because it was, you know, and in our social media world, that was getting me likes and that was getting me like people following me and that was getting me all the things that you want when you're when you're trying to build a brand on social media especially around disability that was getting me those 
people to follow me. But then I was like, one day I was like, you know what? This is hurting me. I don't feel good doing this anymore. It's really hard. Why don't I use my platform to, to, and it's going to sound really cheesy, but to spread kindness for me, not for Mm. them, for me to feel better. And if I can use my platform to use my lived experience to teach somebody, why wouldn't I do that? Mm. Exactly. Hasn't been an easy road to get there, and I support anyone who's not there yet, but but that's where yeah. I'm trying to be. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you, because we didn't talk about that yet, what has your experience of online dating been like? <laughs> um, yeah. Strange. I mean, I never I never really um, conquered it. So I, so I'm right now I'm in a long-term relationship. Um, so I haven't dated for a few years. Um, so I'm casting my mind back. Um, but yeah, online dating, I always (laughs) found so hard and such a minefield of like, like, what is the etiquette? Have we actually have we actually together as a disabled community decided what is best practice? Cause I never figured it out. Like I don't think we well, have. At what, point, at what point do you disclose disability? Because I did, I, when I think when I was dating online and again, this is years back. Um, it was before I started really like using the, term and identity disabled I mean I did I did still refer to myself as a disabled person like to friends but I didn't like you know like now I have it in my Twitter bio you know now it's like being a disabled campaigner is very much a part of what I say I am yeah. and you know a few years ago it wasn't I you know in my bio I just put some like funny cheese pun or something um, <laughs> <laughs> and or like some silly reference and I I um I didn't want to I felt so weird about the idea of putting the fact that I was disabled in my bio because I was like I don't that's so weird like Katie by the way I'm disabled like like I did I just felt really weird <laughs> doing that um I didn't find a way to do it that was like cool so I didn't and then I was like oh no but all of the pictures of me are of my face and you can't you can't tell that I am disabled um unless you like unless I had a picture of me in a wheelchair like you like you zoomed out me from afar where I'm sat in a wheelchair but sometimes people like and I think I did put a picture of me in my wheelchair but it was like you know you had to swipe a few pictures across to get to it it wasn't the first picture yeah and so a lot of people who were just looking at the first picture and swiping um I was like, oh, have they seen? Do they know? Do they know? And then we'd have like, I'd have these like hilarious conversations where I was trying to ascertain whether or not the person I was talking to knew I was disabled or not. And I was like, do they know? Have they have they figured it out? And we would be like, like, oh, what what are some examples? I remember, I don't know, like talking about. Because I, I say, like, um, you know, I say, like, oh, I'm walking to the shops. Or, like, I yeah. I walked over there. I walked in. Blah, blah, blah. I don't say, you know, I don't say, oh, I... I roll over it. I roll, I rolled across the floor. You know, I... And so, you know, even from conversation, it doesn't, it doesn't come out. 
and I remember, yeah, we were having these conversations. And so I, I remember there being this conversation and someone was talking about something specific. I can't remember. The, it, this is a very boring story if I don't have the details, but it was a conversation <laughs> that involved like physical activity. I can't remember what it was. He was suggesting that we do some like thing that involved like walking. And yeah. I was like, does he know? Does he know that I can't walk? Is he just saying walk because I'm saying walk? Does he know that I'm disabled? Oh my god! And it's just like so ridiculous because, like, I am I am so like but like happy with the fact that I'm disabled. Like, it's no skin off my nose. Like, I want people to know I I like it about myself, and obviously they're gonna find out soon enough. But I also appreciate that, like, it for some people it is awkward, um, especially if they've never met someone disabled before, and. I was so unsure as to how to have that conversation first, especially over messaging, because like yeah. I just I feel so much more comfortable talking about things than I do about te- you know writing things down in a Tinder chat box. Um, so I never knew how to get that right, and so I actually just like never talked about it explicitly on the apps, and I would just meet up with people in pe- in person. Um, See, I do uh, on, on the apps. I'll say like "bear in the chair." I'll say like <laughs> "want to." I'll say like "want to touch my joystick." I'll make a really okay. direct reference to my yeah. disability. That's interesting. Because so, so here's a question for you then. Because do you not worry about the kind of flip side of that, which is disability fetishization? I have a weird feeling about fetishization. I think. That, and I, with my non-disabled partners and with the people that I sleep with, I I will say, like, I want you to see my disability. I want you to call me a queer cripple. I want you to, to use the language that I use because it will mean that you are starting to see me for who I am. I think where fetishization can be a problem is if you then start to dehumanize the person as you're doing it. If you start to make them less than, if you start to ask them to do things you know they can't do, or you start to, like, Make it so that, oh, you're the boy in the wheelchair and we're going to mess around, but you can't move because, oh, you're disabled. Like, if you start doing that, then it's weird. But if you mm. do it in a way, for me anyway, if you do it in a way that's empowering to me and, like, mm. I've signed off on you. Like, one of my sex workers, you know, will joke around and he'll call me, sometimes he'll call me, like, a gimp or sometimes we'll, like, we'll, mm. we, we've known each other now for three plus years, so there's a, a comfort level there. But yeah. I, I remember talking to him about it. And he would say, like, I was really scared because I didn't want to offend you. And I was really scared that I didn't want to say the wrong thing. And I think once I kind of gave him permission to, to play with that, and I and I said, like, this, does, this doesn't bother me. You not being able to talk about it bothers me more. Let's, like, mm-hmm. let's make you comfortable. So I feel like fetishization, if the disabled person is comfortable exploring that part of it as long as the like non-disabled mm-hmm. person doesn't I think if the non-disabled person initiates that then I have an issue with it if yeah I initiate it and we can talk about it together then talk about the ways in which it can be used to empower me and us in our like dating slash sexual relationship then that's great but if you if it's if it's used from the non-disabled person to me as like a as like this weird sort of endearing thing without me being without me consenting, then I feel weird. 
That's really interesting. That's such a, yeah, that's a really good way of explaining it. And thank you, because I don't think that, I don't think I fully understood that before. But I mean, for me, the the very idea of like having my disability fetishized and my disabled body fetishized, yeah. like absolutely like, makes me recoil. Like I, I am just so uncomfortable with that. And I, I know, you know, I, I've like, I've stumbled across the, dark areas of the internet of like <laughs> <laughs> you know like porn that and and um depictions of disability where like people get off on the vulnerability of the other person of the disabled person and like oh my god and it's so interesting because it like it really like sex is so much about or like vulnerability sex anyway. is a lot about power and yeah that that dynamic and you know who's in control and who's not in control and and adding disability into that like and especially you know as a woman i just felt that so there's something so predatory about that uh, like fetishizing fetishization of my disability i basically i didn't want men to like look at me as weak and vulnerable as this like pretty and, disabled and, girl and, that they can take advantage of yeah and but and like get off on that like that makes me sick yeah. and it, it's it's really hard to like you know you know talking about kind of submissive and dominating roles in sexual relationships is something really weird and uncomfortable when you bring disability into it because like i i I don't want to be I don't want to be seen as in any way weak or or vulnerable or submissive because I'm disabled but in the same way like I you know I want to you want to please your partner let go. And, yeah so yeah yeah I think and I think when I talk about fetishization too and all that stuff and like submissive and dominance from my perspective as a white cis man i'm speaking from it from a sense of like privilege that you don't have and so when i talk about it like i don't know how i would feel about about my views on being i'm being fetishized if i were a woman or if i were a non-binary disabled person i don't know i don't know how i would feel so i'm very aware when i when i bring when i bring my side into that conversation like i'm very aware that that i'm speaking from a place of super privilege than say you are and I like I don't necessarily run the risk of being being hurt or being you know abused by somebody if I was to put myself in a vulnerable state as much as say mm -hmm. you would as a disabled woman so I think that needs to be like I, I'm always have I always have to be aware of that when I bring up my views on on fetishization that's a really hard word to say I'm <laughs> being fetishized because like I don't know what it would be like to be a disabled woman so I think when if a disabled woman says being fetishized makes me feel weird, I have to just go, yep, you're right. I respect that because I have no idea. So maybe for you it does. For me as a disabled man, I think I can, I have the privilege where I can choose to play with it if I want to yeah. and use it to my advantage. But I don't know how I would feel if I were a woman. So when you say, you know, it makes you feel kind of squidgy, I, I support that. Mm. I it, yeah there are just so many experiences of like being hit on and the man is like clearly 
like getting off on this power dynamic that he thinks exists because I am disabled. Supposedly and, we do, yeah. Yeah, and it's that, you know, like that's that part of it makes me uncomfortable because like beyond like fearing for my safety, which is like a whole other aspect, you know, that uh, there's that, but there's also just this psychological thing of like, I just, I don't want to be made to feel like that yeah. by someone else. Like if I want to feel that way, you know, if I want to, you know, submit and be overpowered by someone, that's my choice Yeah. to do so. And that would happen inside a trusting partnership, you know, where you are equals. Um, but having people like perv over my disability is just... Ugh. Yeah, and I think that's a great. I think that's a great distinction. Like, I think the distinction of like, if I choose to be, a, a, a like a submissive disabled person, that's my choice. Mm. Let me choose that. But if you haven't given me the choice, then I'm not okay with it. And that's what I was saying. Yeah, when, that's what I was saying when like, if you want to fetishize me and you're dehumanizing me, that's not giving me a choice. Mm. If you're reducing me to just this disabled person you're fucking that's not giving me a choice mm. if, if you want to see me as the hot disabled guy in a wheelchair you're fucking great then I have a bit more agency but if all I'm reduced yeah. to is like this this disabled body you want to play with because disabled people are hot are like an attraction to you and this is where this is where I think like when people say they have a disability fetish my first thought is well are you attracted to the disabled person or are you attracted to the disabled body? Because they're two very different things. Are you mm. are you attracted to me attached to the body, or are you attracted to just some body that can't move? Because then, the... well, the idea of it, yeah. Like mm. if people are attracted to the idea of a disabled body, and all that that's bound up with, you know, the idea of vulnerability and the idea of weakness or the idea of power play, I think that's when it becomes really problematic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah. I mean, I I like being submissive. I like being told what to do. Like I like I like that. I I like the power dynamic in bed. Hey everybody! But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like it when I when I'm given a choice. Mm. When I'm allowed to choose whether that's what I want, and when I'm allowed, yeah. Like, when I'm with my sex worker, I'll say like, "Okay, this session's all you. Tell me what we're doing, and I'll I'll follow you because there's a trust there." But if he was just some rando that I met on an app. And that started without any discussion. I'd be like, oh, okay, that feels weird. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, like, as with everything with sex, it all just completely comes down to consent. Yeah. And you can't, that's what, that's my problem with it. You you can't consent if like from the very beginning, from the offset, you are being put in this like position of less yeah. power yeah. just by the nature of your, of the dynamic. You know, if someone is, is coming on to you because they see you as like smaller and weaker then that that agency is in, like immediately removed totally and that's removed. when i have a problem with it yeah mm. i agree with you completely one of the my second last question that i have here for you katie is when i we, we talked about this a little bit at the, at the outset how london is notoriously inaccessible for <laughs> wheelchair users how do you think we make the London dating scene more accessible? How do you think, like, where would you start? (laughs) 
Um, God. Okay. So, so it's, so, okay. It's interesting. London compared to the rest of the UK is probably one of the, one of the best places to be as a disabled person because it's probably a little bit more accessible than the rest. Maybe not other big cities, like um, maybe Manchester and uh, like Liverpool are probably better. I don't know. I don't know those places as better. But I grew up in the countryside um, in Oxfordshire and there's an, you can't, you really cannot do anything. Like there's no, there's no access anywhere. Everything's steps. Everything's like in the dark ages. You know, even going to Oxford, the city, all the pubs have multiple steps to get in. You know, these are really old buildings and they're yeah. all listed. They're all protected. It, it, there's cobbles everywhere. There's steps everywhere. It's a nightmare. And that's kind of one of the reasons I moved to London is for, um, for that better access. Um, and London's a real mishmash of different buildings. You know, you've got the really old buildings that are hideously inaccessible. And you do have a lot of like, new buildings that have good access as well um and i think in terms of dating it really depends on what your ideal first date is and that's changed for me as i've got older you know when i was younger i'd kind of go out with um groups of mates and we'd go to bars and clubs and things and that honestly yeah clubbing is clubbing is tricky <laughs> in london um you know a lot of good bars and clubs are downstairs in basements um and that's hard and then if you find a good pub that doesn't have a flight of steps to get in quite often they don't have an accessible toilet yeah so that whole side of things is really tricky i think as i've as I've matured, and now I'm a mature woman. Um, About the town, I, yeah. I like to go to restaurants and things, which are, it's obviously much, much easier to find accessible restaurants. Um, but it is still really difficult. Um, so, I mean, with my friends, we, a few years ago when my mate set up a, um, what was it called? Well, it had a good name. It was called Where the Fuck Should I Go on My Next Date? That was the Google Doc. And Amazing. we basically like compiled a list of like all the good spots we'd found for good dates. Um and then I think um my mate who set it up, she was like making making it into a map. So she was like putting all the different places on the map. And then bless her, she like colour coded them um based on what I had said about access. So the, all the pubs that I had said, oh, yeah, that's a good one to go to because it has an accessible toilet, she'd, like, put in green. And all the ones that were down a flight of stairs, she'd put in red. Um, and, you know, it's that it's that kind of, like, you know, you when you live in a place, you build up a mental map and a, your own kind of database of the good spots to go to. Your own and, kind of database? Yes. <laughs> and it... I think it's just kind of as a community sharing those kind of resources and ideas with one another. Like quite often, if I have a question about access or about disability, I'll literally just ask Twitter because someone will always be like, Oh, Hey, there's that, you know, the other day I asked about um, where, where in London has a good, like accessible pool with warm water. 
And like everyone was like, oh, there's one here and there's one here. It's amazing. I love that. It's, it's like the the community is so powerful. Yeah. Um, it's like hive mind. And I know that there are apps. I know that there are, you know, Access Able and Access Now and um, Ewan's Guide and uh, all of these other apps that sort of have started to build up, you know, like an accessible, an access order of different places. Um I've never really got on with any of them. I think it's because like yeah, me neither. Really, no, nowhere has everything. Do you know? Like, like yeah. it'd be good if I'm obviously this is impossible because well, it's a lot of work. But there needs to be something that just has everything um, with the access info on it. And on the best thing that can happen is for every single business, every pub, every restaurant, every club, every cinema, every single business right now to put their access info on their website and on their Google listing, because yep. that way, like I don't have to download a third app and then like search for something and like not find what I'm looking for. You just like, like everyone else, Google what's around you and be able to see the access information um, for that business. And uh, it's so, that it's so easy. That's what's so annoying about it. It's like, it would, it's so easy to do if every single business just like took, Two 10 minutes. minutes yeah and just thought okay let's describe the access of this building and put it on their website it would save so much time and energy so much on time disabled people's part um but yeah so i mean that that's that's one well, that's one thing that could go a long way to make things easier um and also like i think i've seen you tweeting about this maybe i think this is your idea but i um there's also like if you're going on a date with a disabled person, um, do the legwork yourself. Like that would be really cool. If yeah. I was dating someone and they were like, "Hey, I've reset. I've called up this place, um, and we're going here. They have a loo." I say that that is what my current partner did on our first date. <laughs> oh yay! Like oh, we're going to this place. I've called them up. They have a loo. Let I pick you up at seven. Let's go. And I was like, "This is good." This is good. Oh, I so, like that. Good. Yeah. Um, one last question for you, because I want to get in there, because I thought it was important. You mentioned in your questionnaire that you really, because you've been so busy trying to navigate being disabled and kind of coming to terms with that identity for yourself, mm-hmm. um, you, that you really haven't gotten to explore your the intersection of queerness and disability for yourself. Has that been something you're exploring more now or looking like not in terms of like the sexual acts of queerness, but like just the identity of being queer and disabled? Is that something you're looking into more? Well, I mean, not right now in the in the world that we in the, in the inside world that I live in. Where yeah. I haven't left my in 84 days. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good question. No, it's something that's still plays on my mind a lot um and it's it isn't something that I have explored at all and I do really want to and there's another kind of um side to this which is that um like queer spaces are so often not accessible either and so there's there's a real problem accessing the the community um and I mean that in the sense you know, not not just literally like like queer clubs 
although that is a huge part of it you know any kind of queer space um like community space and like activist space and um like place where people meet each other is you know so often not accessible um and yeah that's that's really that's really hard um and it is really hard because like these are spaces that advocate for queerness but when you bring up disability to them they're like oh we didn't realize oh sorry sorry and it's like well how can you how can one go without the other yeah and um yeah you're you're right so I you know as I've talked about I spent so long (laughs) so much of my life like all my adolescent and adult life has been spent like gradually like shedding the negative ideas of disability that I had right and finally getting to a place where I genuinely love myself I'm so glad about that I'm thank you me too you know I'm 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 happy the way I am and I like the way I am and I feel sexy and you know I've dealt with that but that took so much time and energy and and yeah I I felt that I spent all of my energy and time grappling with that identity. Right. That I never, I never invested any time uh, at all with my like sexuality. Um, that part, which I'm identity. sure was so hard for you to like. It's so hard to have those two worlds and not be able to explore one. Yeah, and. Um, I think, you know, as I've talked about as well, because, you know, a lot of my um, early sexual experiences were really defined by my internalized ableism and my attitudes towards disability. Like all of the early experiences I had was me basically being like, I need a man to find me attractive so I feel better about myself. Right. And it, because, it, it, you know, it, again, it's that intersection of like, misogyny and ableism like I it was that male gaze that I was really like conforming to and are you therefore, hopeful that that might change if you were to be in a queer relationship at at some point in your life do you think that the the, the gaze would not be there because the person may not be male <laughs> well n- no I don't think it has to do with that the other person's um gender um what I mean by the male gaze is not necessarily that it comes from the, a male. It's just that it is shaped by the patriarchy. Yeah. So, for example, I'm currently in a relationship with a man and I don't experience any of that because um, he's not a dick, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, uh, like, I I feel very comfortable in myself at the moment in the relationship that I am in. Um, and I don't experience any of that. Um, and so I don't think, you know, if I, I would hope if I was in a queer relationship, I would be in a queer relationship with someone who is equally, uh, not a dick, um, and not, yeah, not sort of like caught up in that whole gaze. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's just a part of myself that I know that I want to invest more That you should have the right to like, you should be given eventually now that you feel comfortable with being disabled maybe that'll come later 
Yeah. Who knows? Two seconds. My attendance here, sure. for, here for lunch. Hold on. Um, yeah. Ten minutes? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, a sandwich? Okay. Sorry about that. It's okay. Um, I'm going to cut that part out. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> your experience of queerness, I think whether you're in a hetero relationship or not, you can still be queer and disabled. And I think you can... I think you can play with that, like, explore that identity, even if you're not acting on things, you can still be queer and disabled. Mm. Yeah, and that's really important to hear for people who, like, physically can't access spaces or, yeah. like, physically don't have access to, to maybe acting on their feelings. Yeah. yeah, and I think for a lot of people who may be disabled and who who may, maybe don't have physical access to, like, sneak out of the house and go, go like, have a negative queer clubbing, they can still <laughs> identify as queer, and, like, it doesn't have to be tied to whether or not they were, were, were with a, with a same-sex person or with, like, someone who, who, you know, goes against what they're used to. They don't have to act on those things, but they can still have the identity. Mm, yeah. It's a very important point. And I feel like you, if you wanted to, whenever you're ready, or if you're, if it's something you feel you want to explore just in yourself and not necessarily act on it, I feel like you can. I feel like you should be given the choice to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, this was really fun. We had, <laughs> the audience won't know, but we had a ton of audio issues recording today. <laughs> so I'm so glad that we got it, got through. It was so fun to finally sit down with you. And I'm so happy we finally yes. did it. I'm uh, so happy to. Thanks so much for having me. This has it, been such a great chat. It was such a great time. Um, how can people in the Twitterverse and on the social media get a hold of you? <laughs> they can get a hold of me on Twitter. I am at Katie Penick, K-A-T-I-E-P-E-N-N-I-C-K. Um, that's where I am. I'm I'm not on any social media really in any any true form, but I am very active on Twitter. So follow me there. And I have a podcast, which we talked about, which you can listen to. It's How We Got Here. Um, and I'm hoping to make another one. So watch this space. Cool. If you need, well, you're, you're already a radio producer, but if you need somebody to help you with ideas, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. This was so fun, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark and dealing with all my audio issues, but we got it done. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Uh, this, this was great. Thanks so much, Katie Panic, and we'll talk to you so Thank soon. Thank you. Speak to you soon. For sure. Bye. Um, I will... Um, I All right, friends. This has been another edition of Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. I'm, of course, your number one queer cripple and your disabled Dick Smith host, Andrew Gerza. If you like what you heard today and you want to follow my work and find out more about what I do, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast directly, you can head over to Twitter and punch in DisAftDarkPod and follow us there. 
If you want to contact the show with a show idea, a guest idea, a comment, or a complaint, you can head over to your email and email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to this latest edition of Disability After Dark, and we'll be here to shine a bright light on more things really soon. Thanks, everybody. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020